working through the entire book of Deuteronomy together, and uh, we're coming back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, which we will read uh, in its entirety, 20 verses in all, this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is the word of uh, the living God, so let's be sure to listen to what he has to say to us today. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. In which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
Well, we're looking at a fairly large passage this morning. I want to look at all of chapter 8 because it contains a singular message. And the message basically boils down to this. Uh, Remember God in the hard times. Do not forget God in the, the hard times, or the good times, excuse me. And know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And at the start of another year, a new year, I think this is a message, a timely message for God's people to hear today. Uh, Remember God in the hard times. Don't forget God in the good times. And know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The image that comes to my mind when I think about what's being communicated in this passage is the image of a mother bird and her chicks in a nest, hatchlings or whatever they're called, baby birds in a nest, totally helpless. All they can do is open up their mouths and receive food from their mother. That, that's us, friends. That's the church of Jesus Christ. That is the people of God, totally, wholly, radically dependent on the word of the Lord. And accordingly, I'd like us to consider this passage today in, in two parts. It breaks down basically into two different sections uh, first in verses 1 through 10, the, the test of affliction or <clears throat> the test of suffering. And then secondly, in verses 11 through 20, uh, the test of affluence or the, the test of success. We have the, the, the test of affliction and the test of affluence or the test of suffering and the test of success. So let's consider the first, the test of affliction. There's a common question that, that comes up in the Christian life. It's, it's a question that I uh, hear raised a lot as, as a pastor, and it's asked in different ways, but it's along the lines of, why, why does God humble his people? Why does God allow his people to go through various trials and difficulties. And the Bible answers uh, those kinds of questions in a number of ways. In fact, we have a few answers here in our passage uh, today. This chapter, as we're going to see, offers at least three answers to that question. And the Bible gives more, but this chapter contains several that I want us to look at in the first five verses. Now, first of all, though, after, notice the context, after calling the Israelites to remain faithful and to obey and to remember their own history of how God had redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt in verse 1, Moses then explains that God caused his people to wander in the wilderness for at least three distinct but overlapping reasons. Now, Earlier on in Deuteronomy, if you can think back to when we started this series, Moses already has explained the wandering in the wilderness years from a kind of um, horizontal perspective. You remember God had brought the people uh, uh, to the brink of the promised land, 
and they're in uh, Kadesh Barnea, and the Lord tells them to, to go up, to enter in, to take the land that the Lord was giving to them, the, Lord, the land that the Lord had promised to their fathers, but they, um, they appointed some, some scouts or spies, one representative of each of the tribes, and sent them in, and at least 10 came back with a negative report saying, you know, there's, there's giants, the Anakim are there, and they're, they're too much for us. We don't have what it takes to, um, to possess the land. And Deuteronomy says that they would not go in because they did not trust the Lord. They would not listen to the word of the Lord. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But Deuteronomy 8 shows us that God had other reasons. And verse 16 tells us to do them good in the end. And the first reason in verse 2, God led them through the wilderness, Moses says, to humble them. Now this is a tough pill to swallow. It's a hard truth, but it's a truth nonetheless that without experiencing trials and difficulties, we may very well become proud and self-reliant. Or in the language that's used in the book of Deuteronomy later on, Moses talks about Israel saying that Israel in the land grew fat and kicked. That's how Moses describes them. And that's what we sometimes do when, when we're full. We, we grow full and forgetful. We, we become proud and self-reliant and we forget God. We forget what he's done for us. We forget where everything comes from. And so the Lord puts us through difficult experiences, humbling experiences, precisely in order that we learn to be humble and dependent because in reality... That's what we are. We could say this is, this is a severe mercy. But boy, do we sometimes need it. Verse 16 picks up on this again and says, The Lord humbled you to do you good in the end. And we've got to keep that end in view when we are in the midst of humbling afflictions. We, we need to live by God's word that says God's purpose for his people in the midst of afflictions is to do them good in the end. And one of those goods is to humble his people. And knowing that and living that way actually requires us to take the main message of this passage to heart, that we do not live on the basis of how we feel, we live on the basis of what God says. We live by faith, trusting God's promise, among other promises, to, to lift up the humble and to bring low the proud. We live by faith, believing that it is better to be humbled in this temporary life than it is to be humbled in the life to come. Uh, the second reason God led his people through the wilderness, according to verse 2, was to test them. Uh, the idea here, I think, is to, to, to bring to light what was in their heart. Right? The idea is not that God doesn't know how they're going to, to respond to his commandments or, or what they're going 
to do. He, he knows our hearts. He, he sees our innermost parts. So the idea is not that he needs to discover something or that he needs to find something out that he didn't previously know. The idea is that he wants to bring something to light. He wants to bring the truth, the reality to light through testing. Now, whether, whether good or bad, trials have a way of exposing things, don't they? Bringing things to the surface. A little bit of pressure has a way of showing what's, what's really going on in, inside of us. You could say hardships are revealing. And any of us who have been through challenges and difficulties, I think will attest to the fact that they have a way of helping us better know ourselves, the truth of our own hearts and our own spiritual condition. And that was certainly true for Israel. That's the idea behind this testing. I think an illustration that might help here is you you might remember back in uh, 2009 when the U.S. Airways flight um, hit a flock of birds and lost engine power uh, over New York City. And they had just a, a few minutes to make decisions about what to do and make an emergency landing. And uh, the pilot, Chelsea Sollenberger, who's known affectionately today as Captain Solly, um, landed the plane on the Hudson River just outside of Manhattan, of all places. So not only were the 155 lives on board saved, but who knows how many other lives were spared in in such a densely populated part of the city. As people have studied this event, it's it's been called one of the greatest ditchings of a plane in aviation history. And to span of two or three minutes, a bunch of decisions, split split second decisions had to be made. And it really is incredible when you read the story to see how many things had to go right for those people's lives to be saved. But I think it's important to recognize that Captain Sully did not become a great pilot in that moment of crisis. Right? Those, those two or three minutes where the crucial decisions were made were not the time when he became a great pilot, but rather they revealed right, a skill that he had developed over years and years of time as an aviator. Now, sadly, though, not all tests have such positive results. It's quite often the case that the trials we experience reveal the opposite results of showing things that we don't really want to know. Uh, Facing up to reality we really don't want to have to face up to. Uh, having, Having kids, being a dad and a parent, it's a tremendous blessing It is one of the greatest blessings of my life, but you also know if you've been a parent that there are days, times when it might feel like a bit of a test, (laughs) right? And it it reveals things about yourself that perhaps you didn't know were there, things that I don't like about myself. Testing. And verse 2 helps us understand that this, this takes place in the lives of God's people in the context of Uh, what we might call an adoptive relationship. God tests his beloved children to reveal what is in their hearts, and once again, to do them good in the end. And so I think it's it's worth asking ourselves ourselves the question, how 
How do we respond to disappointment? How do we respond to privation? To, to not getting something that we think we need? How do we respond to loss? Right? Pain. All of these experiences have a way of exposing what's in our hearts. It, it proves our reliance upon God or it reveals perhaps that we are serving an idol. A third, according to verse 3, God led his people through the wilderness not only to humble and test them, but he allowed them to go through the painful experience of physical hunger to then provide them with manna so that they might know their total dependence upon the word of the Lord for their lives. Verse 3, look at it with me. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by, the, by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So verse 3, read it carefully. It says that God let them hunger and then fed Israel with manna from heaven that he commanded by his word so that they might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, this all took place to teach Israel a vital lesson. God sent manna down from heaven, not just to fill their stomachs, though he certainly was providing for their physical needs, but also to teach his people a crucial lesson for the life of faith. So what was God teaching them? Well, in essence, that life, true life, is found in radical, complete dependence upon the word of God. That's why, that's why the manna was sent the way that it was, by the Lord's creative word and command. Not just to provide for their physical need of food, but to teach God's people that we do not live by bread alone, but by the creative word of God, a word that can rain down food from heaven. And the collection of manna, another thing to notice in all of this, is that the collection of manna also required Israel to respond to the word of the Lord by faith, trusting in what the Lord said he would do. God said he would provide food from heaven at set times, and they were only to gather manna according to God's instruction. They had to receive and act upon the word in faith. And in this way, the manna was a lesson that only in submission to God's sovereign word, only in obedience to God's word, does one find true life. And, and this leads us to where I, I want to park the bus for a few minutes, okay? Focus our attention because, as I said earlier, this passage is cited when Jesus, think about this, God's Son, the second and last Adam, and the true and faithful Israelite, when the Son of God incarnate hungered in the wilderness, 
And so just remember, Adam and Israel and Scripture, they're both identified as God's sons, and each went through a, a, a season, a period of time of testing. And it's no accident that immediately after Jesus was baptized uh, with the Holy Spirit, the, the, or the Holy Spirit then led him into the wilderness, and we read those verses in Matthew chapter 4, that Jesus was led by the Spirit, and then in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Talk about a massive understatement, right? And then the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You know, why, would, why would God want you to suffer like this, Jesus? You've Son of God, why, why don't you just, here are some stones. Why don't you just turn them into loaves of bread and satisfy the hunger pangs that you're experiencing? But Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now the parallelisms between Israel in the wilderness and Jesus in the wilderness are simply stunning. Um, let's just take stock of a few of them because I think it'll help us understand what's being communicated here. First, like Israel who was baptized in, in the Red Sea, Jesus had just been baptized in the River Jordan. Second, like Israel who is identified as the Son of God in Deuteronomy 8 verse 5 and back in the uh, book of Exodus as God's firstborn son, Jesus is identified as God's beloved son at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3 verse 17. And we could just stop there and spend the rest of our morning together thinking about how right after the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He is then led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. And isn't that instructive? So when we, when we find ourselves experiencing trials, we should never conclude as God's people that we are not loved or that we are not the children of God when the Son of God himself went through these things. But let's, let's move on here. More, more parallel, uh, parallelisms between uh, Israel and Jesus. More connections. Third, like Israel who was led and tested in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. Fourth, like Israel who encountered fiery serpents in the wilderness, according to Deuteronomy 8.15, Jesus encountered that ancient serpent, as he's called, the devil. And we could just keep going with the connections here. But we're not just meant to see similarities between Israel and Jesus. We are meant to see, and the gospel accounts of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, we are meant to see him as the promised man, the last Adam, and the only true and faithful son and Israelite, the true and better Adam, and the true and faithful Israelite. Because think about it, Adam, Adam disobeyed the word of the Lord in the garden, and Israel grumbled against the word of the Lord, and of course they would go on to, to forget God and turn their backs upon him when they were when they were sitting in the lap of luxury in the promised land. 
And Israel would be wooed by the idolatry of the surrounding nations and their lot would be the same as theirs, as Deuteronomy, the end of chapter 8, warns. But what do we see in Jesus? What do we see in God's faithful son? Well, we see Jesus identify with his people as the true son of God and we see him at the same time completely enter into our own human condition. This should bring us great, tremendous comfort. Notice notice the nature of the first temptation. Jesus has been led into the wilderness. Contrast that with Adam's place in the garden, full of uh, God's abundant provision, and at the same time corresponding to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. I, I, I can't even understand that. And so the first temptation of the devil comes at this moment of complete physical weakness and breakdown. Satan says, here are some stones, make some bread, do it miraculously, and everything will be better for you. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he understood, he understood that the, at the heart of this temptation is not the bread at all, but the issue of the word of God. Right? Just as eating the tree, Adam eating the tree in the Garden of Eden really wasn't about fruit, but about trusting and relying upon the Lord. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the issue by quoting, he, he gets to the heart of the matter by quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus has understood the significance of the manna, which was not about bread, but about total dependence on the word of the Lord by which one lives. In contrast to the stunning obedience of Jesus, just think about how quickly we, we give in to temptation for a moment. You know, when we have, we have the, the, the slightest excuse to say, yeah, but... Right? Even, even after 40 days of fasting, Jesus says no. Now this is where I think we need to be really careful. It's so easy for us to fail to appreciate the full extent of Jesus' victory and its implications for our lives. And also to just, to just kind of explain this away on the basis of his deity. Right? But I don't think we should do that. It is easy for us to say, well, Jesus is God and and I'm not, I can't be expected to overcome sin and resist temptation when I, when I don't have certain basic needs met. When I have these desires, I have needs, you know, I can't be expected to say no to this when God hasn't given me that. I can't be expected to trust God when he's deprived me of something that I want. Of course, Jesus was able to defeat the evil one, but Jesus is God, and I'm not. I wonder if you ever find yourself thinking that way, rationalizing things that way. Now, of course, it's true Jesus is God, the only eternal Son of God, but what we often fail to fully appreciate and think through is that Jesus was and is and ever remains a real human being. He is is not only God, He's also man. 
Jesus didn't pretend to be born. He was really born. He didn't pretend to become a human being. He became one. Jesus didn't pretend to take our flesh and its, its weaknesses. He took it on with all of our common infirmities. And I think herein lies the glory. This is what makes Jesus' victory so great. For when he overcame the evil one, he did so as one of us, as our representative. Jesus defeated the devil as a man, a true son of Adam, and as the true Israel by, get this, by relying on the very same heavenly resources that are available to you and me today. That's how he overcomes, by dependence, humble dependence upon the word of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, I don't think we always believe this in terms of its implications. We instead find it so easy to say, well, yeah, Jesus is God, but do you really believe that he's also truly man? That a son of Adam and the offspring of Eve has defeated sin and Satan himself. He has stomped on the head of that ancient serpent and blazed the trail and made a way for his people. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus' radical dependence on the word of the Lord, though, should not only comfort us, I think it should challenge us too. I mean, be, be honest. When, when hard times come, where do you instinctively turn? Do you fall back on what is written? Do you go to the book? Do you go to what God has said? When Jesus was attacked, he drew the sword of the Spirit and he dealt blows to the serpent by quoting words from this book. As I said, not once, but three times. It is written, it is written, it is written. And he went to the book of Deuteronomy of all places. I mean, it's one of those passages, one of those parts of the Bible that, that we tend to ignore and avoid. Most of us are, are probably uh, familiar with all of these parallels that I've, I've mentioned this morning between Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Jesus' wilderness temptation as it's recorded in the Gospels. But there's one other connection that I want to highlight for a minute from John's gospel, okay? And it's, uh, it's after Jesus' encounter, <coughs> excuse me, with the woman at the well in John chapter four. And you remember uh, the disciples have been sent away to, to go find something to eat, to go get some food. And uh, they're coming back. And we, we know that Jesus must have been tired and hungry because they've been on a long journey. John 4, 6 says that Jesus was weary. He was worn out. From his journey. But according to John 4, verse 32, when they came back, Jesus said to his disciples, after they said, Rabbi, eat, he said, I have food that you do not know about. Is that ringing any bells? I have food that you do not know about. And the disciples are like, What? <laughs> Come again? Uh, who brought him food? Where did Jesus get this food? And, and what's striking is that this statement echoes Deuteronomy 
chapter 8, verse 3, which says, He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. I have food that you do not know about. That is the main point of our passage. Food that we do not know about, but that Jesus wants us to know about. Food he wants us to eat and enjoy because man does not live by bread alone. For life is more than food and drink. And there is a mysterious abundance that God is able to provide his people when we depend upon him. There are resources available to the people of God, but but so often we're like, the disciples and we're scratching our heads asking what what food what's he talking about where is that he has totally unheard of resources that he can and he has caused to fall out of the sky and one of the one of the primary reasons god leads us into the wilderness friends and causes us to experience trials of various kinds is so that we will get to taste and see this divine and supernatural provision, which people, frankly, are not interested in when they're fat and happy, when they have everything they think they need. And so he makes us hungry so that he might make us full and fill us with that which truly satisfies. So if I can put it this way, stay thirsty, my friends. Keep that edge of hunger. Deuteronomy 8.3 says that he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. And the gospel goes a step further to say that the Lord himself voluntarily humbled and hungered, humbled himself and hungered in the person of Jesus Christ, that he might feed you and make you know that he himself is the true bread of heaven. But appearances can be deceiving, can't they? And what did Jesus look like to the woman at the well? All she saw at first was a thirsty traveler. Where are you going to get this water that you're talking about, Jesus? Who's going to fetch it? You need to give me a drink of water, right? The disciples, what food? Who, who gave him something to eat? Appearances can be deceiving. Jesus looked like a thirsty traveler to the woman at the well, but before her stood the very fountainhead of living waters. Jesus looked like a hungry man but to his disciples, but he was in fact manna in the flesh. He looked like a hungry man, but he's the true bread from heaven. His whole life, Death, resurrection is a grand display of the good news that there is more to life than our biological existence. There's more to life than food and clothing and sex, more to health than our physical well-being, more to safety than the postponement of clinical death. Brothers and sisters, we've all got it coming, but there's more. There's more to life 
than food and drink. There's more to anything than we could ever ask or imagine. For as Moses concludes and sums up the message of the entire book of Deuteronomy, for he is your life. And he came in the flesh to lay down his life to give you his. That brings us to the second section. Don't worry, we're just going to skim over it here because we're going to come back to this theme another time. The test of affluence. Okay, just quickly look over verses 11 through 20 because Moses is issuing a warning that I think God's people need to hear and take to heart. It's saying, in essence, take care lest you forget, lest you forget the Lord by not keeping his word. So in verses 11 through 20, we discover that the counterintuitive reality that it is not only suffering, but also success that can test our faith. Right? Not only affliction, but also the comfort and ease of affluence can be a test for God's people. If we're not careful, the blessings of material abundance can lead to the curse of spiritual amnesia, which is so deadly. When we're full, we can so easily become forgetful. And we've already seen this warning in in Deuteronomy, and the fact that it's repeated again, it really should get our attention. It is a warning against the pride of life and the deceitfulness of riches. And the warning, I think, is one that the people of God today desperately need to heed. Don't forget about God when you're full. Don't forget to obey his commandments. Don't forget how he has led you and fed you and provided for you. And don't forget him regardless of how much success or wealth you acquire. Don't forget where it all comes from. Don't forget, Moses says, who gave you the power to begin with. See, the lesson that we need to really come to terms with in light of all of this is that what you need the most in life is something that you cannot earn. What you need the most in life is not something that you can gain with an abundance of riches. It cannot be found in the most successful affluent economy in the world. It must come down from heaven and be given to you as a gift. White raises the question then, though, why, why do we spend so much of our lives gnawing away on the junk food of this world? It's, it's widely attested that we live in Americans today are wealthier than ever before, I mean, even in the midst of some of the economic challenges that we're currently facing. And this is not just true of upper class, it's true of middle and lower class people having you know, things like air conditioning and plumbing and, you know, supercomputers in our pockets. We are an affluent people. It's not to say there are not needs, but we live in an affluent society. And yet at the same time, it's also widely attested that while we live in a wealthy society, it is simultaneously marked by unprecedented angst and anxiety and unhappiness Uh, Suicide rates are on the rise. Anxiety is rampant. Now, there are different reasons for that. I'm just speaking generally. But 
We, we look at the big picture and we have to recognize that something in society is wrong. Something is off and it cannot be solved by more stuff because man does not live by bread alone. But I wonder, a question I think we should ask ourselves in the light of Deuteronomy 8 is, are, are we living as though... Maybe, maybe it's not what we confess with our mouth. Maybe it's not our confessed theology. But is it our lived theology that we really think we can get by on bread alone? That we can, we can live and exist and find happiness in food and clothing and satisfying our desires? Do we think that's where life is found? Are you living as if when it really gets down to it that your life consists of your job and your income and your house and your possessions and your hobbies and your pleasures, satisfying your bodily desires. It is how so many people so often live. But brothers and sisters, that ain't where life is found, is it? Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of man will give to you. It is a gift, not something you can earn. Listen to the words of Jesus elsewhere in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Where can we get that kind of bread? Where can we get that kind of water? Jesus gives the answer, and he says, come to me. Jesus is the true bread of heaven. He is the word of the living God, the word made flesh, the word we must listen to and depend on for our lives. This is the word God has spoken, as John puts it, that God gives us eternal life and this life is in his son. So, brothers and sisters, listen to him and live, for the Lord Jesus Christ is your life. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking uh, your word to us. And we pray that you would give us a receptive heart to listen and to live. And may we believe on your word, the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and find in him uh, bread and drink that truly satisfies. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.